0: Well, good afternoon, good morning uh, to all of you joining us today. Thanks so much. i um, Eric Lynn Greenberg. I'm an assistant professor of political science at MIT. And on behalf of my, my good friends and co-authors, uh, Dr. Jackie Schneider and Dr. Reed Pauley, we want to welcome you to the third and final uh, installation of our talks on wargaming. Uh, so over the past few weeks, we, we've had a, a number of talks uh, based in part on this article that we published in the International or European Journal of International Relations. And uh, we have spent the first talk discussing wargames as historical data, looking at wargames throughout history and, and how we can learn from Uh, using historical war game data. We had another session that looked at war game data and social science and so how researchers can use war games as a method of generating data. And today I'm really excited to turn the floor over to my colleague Dr. Jackie Schneider and our our distinguished panel to talk about war games and their use in national security. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you Eric and I am just so thrilled to have with us this extraordinary panelist. Um, so brief introductions, because um, I don't even think these folks need introductions, but just in case. So we have with us Mr. Bob Work, who is the 32nd Deputy Secretary of Defense. Uh, Dr. Micah Zanko is the Director of Research and Learning at the McChrystal Group, and Dr. Stacey Pettyjohn, uh, who is a Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, now, I'm going to jump right into questions, because um, some of you may have felt like your ears were burning during the uh, the previous sessions, um, and I want to get um, straight to uh, to questions that came up in the previous um, in the previous discussions. So, Bob, you your name has come up quite a bit in the previous conversations. And that was really because as Deputy Secretary of Defense, you made um, a really large effort towards integrating and improving war games across the Department of Defense. And so I wanted to get get from your perspective um, as the Deputy Secretary of Defense kind of What role do you think war games play in defense decision-making? And what were the efforts that you started under your uh, guise as the Deputy Secretary of Defense to try and integrate and improve war games within the DOD?
2: Thanks, Jackie. It's great to be here this afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody and everyone who's listening. War gaming has traditionally been an extremely important part of Department of Defense planning, programming, programming even budgeting. Uh, Generally what I'll talk about are the times that war games have really been used in periods of enormous technological or international change to try to give a sense of what may be coming or what may be possible. Those in the Department of Defense probably uh, think of the interwar period uh, as just a wonderful time for wargaming because there was so much going on uh, in the United States Navy, for example. They were planning for a potential war against the Imperial uh, Empire of Japan, and they had to figure out how to get the fleet across the Pacific, how would they sustain the fleet across the Pacific, what type of operations would be in the Pacific. At the same time, there was a tremendous technological change primarily in uh, bringing aviation into the fleet. So throughout, from about 1920 all the way up until 1941, the Navy would do war games every single year. And at the end of the war, uh, the Navy would say, look, nothing surprised us in the Pacific with the exception of kamikazes. War games illuminated everything that happened. Um, In the 1990s, in my own experience, at the end of the Cold War, we knew things were going to change immensely. And in 1992, the Office of Net Assessment, under the late great director, Andrew Marshall, uh, started a war game called 20XX. And he called it 20XX because he said, look, technology is really going to change the way wars are fought, the character of war how will it do so? And he didn't want to debate, well, the change is going to occur in 2020 or 2030 or 2010. He just called it 20XX. And he said, how will warfare change? And during this war game series, which started like in 1992, 93, really started humming along in 1995 and ended just before 9-11, I would say that it pretty much nailed what is referred to as the precision strike regime. You know, the combination of guided munitions and battle networks. And it pretty much nailed what was going to happen. It foresaw the development of hypersonic missiles. It foresaw the development of all kinds of different unmanned systems and drones. It talked about the different types of operations that would be required. And if you look at the 2001 QDR, Quadrennial Defense Review, and the five or six operational challenges that Secretary Rumsfeld said, look, we don't know when we're going to have another peer competitor, but we have to plan as though we will have one. And here are the operational challenges we're gonna have to solve when that occurs. Those were all drawn from a decade long of wargaming. And I would say, if we had followed them, Uh, we'd be in a lot better position today than we are now. But 9-11 happened, and it kind of took us in a different direction. So war games are so important in the Department of Defense. They illuminate all sorts of new concepts of operations, new types of technologies, how the technologies will change the character of war. Uh, So as a Deputy Secretary, having gone through the 90s with 20XX, I was determined to try to revitalize Wargaming in the department, which had kind of gone quiescent over the period of the times of the wars in the Middle East. Um, So I really wanted to ramp things up, and we tried our best to do so.
1: follow up on this before I I move um, to our other panelists because one of the things that we've talked a lot about in the the other sessions, including um, our session on the use of wargaming as a historical piece of data, um, is the initiative that you uh, put forth to create a DoD wargame repository. Um, I was kind of tangentially involved in this because part of this effort was happening at the Naval War College while I was there, but I was interested to kind of from your perspective, what were the challenges you found uh, when you were trying to build a repository? And maybe if you could talk to the audience a little bit about kind of what you were trying to build um, and what you thought the purpose of putting all this data together was. Um, and then, you know, secondarily, Is there a role that um, academic institutions might be able to play in compiling this kind of data um, and analyzing DOD war games?
2: Sure. Yeah, one of the key outputs of the Department of Defense is the defense program and budget. The capabilities that we need, the capabilities, how much of the capabilities we want to buy, how much capacity we want to buy, And as the deputy secretary, I would sit in an uh, organization or a a meeting called the deputies management action group. And the vice chairman of the joint chief of staff and the deputy would sit at the head of the table. And we would talk about tactical aviation, for example. And we would debate the type of capabilities we needed, the type of capabilities we needed to get rid of, uh, how much to buy, what to buy, we would have uh, DMAGs on research and development, for example. And I was constantly surprised at the lack of decision quality data that a senior leader in the Department of Defense has available to help make decisions. Uh, I knew war games were going on in the department, but I had no idea what the war games were telling us. And so the whole purpose of the repository was Let's have everybody who's doing war games to report the outcomes of their games, put it in a repository, which was held by CAPE, the Cost Analysis and Program Evaluation Directorate. And they would bring in the results to the DMAG and say, look, uh, a common theme across all of the war games is we are really bad at contested logistics. So we need to do something better in contested logistics. We need to have better capabilities. We need to have better capacities. So that was the whole purpose of the repository. It was actually to get the results of war games in front of senior leaders who up to that point knew that war games games were going on but had no idea what they were telling us, if anything. So, uh, yes, by all means, I think academia could help. The way I would think about it is the people who report the results of war games, it would be great if there was an outside, independent kind of look at the war games and said, yes, I think you can make this determination based on the war game, or this determination is a stretch, and this determination you have absolutely no evidence for. So academia could really help in that regard. And, you know, there's all sorts of problems. I think the repository still works, uh, is still in in play. Uh, I don't exactly know how the Department of Defense is using it. Uh, But one of the problems we would have is if a war game revealed a capability or capacity that was not consistent with the services program, it could be internally depressed or you know, not brought forward. And that would be another thing that the academics could help on and say, hey, there's a real good there's a real good insight here, but it's not getting up to the leaders. It's being squashed inside of the service bureaucracy. So that would be one thing that I would hope that the department is looking at and making sure isn't happening. So for example, if a war game said, look, by 2045 we need to have, completely flip, the ratio of unmanned squadrons and manned squadrons, uh, crewed and uncrewed systems. And uh, perhaps the chief of staff of the Air Force thinks that's too aggressive, that 2045 is too soon. They does not think you'd be able to do it, doesn't have enough money to even get there, even if he or she agreed to it. So War Games can't tell you the answer, but they can help inform an answer that senior leaders can then pursue.
1: I think that brings up an important concept um, that maybe is a little foreign to academics, which is the idea of the sponsor and the role that the sponsor plays in driving the, sometimes the outcomes of the games, but also the way in which the outcomes are reported um, and potentially whether those outcomes are reported at all. So Stacey, I wanna turn to you because you, uh, you before working at CNAS, you uh, led the Wargaming Center at RAND, um, which for those of you who don't know, it's what's called a FFRDC, Federally Funded Research Something center. And so the idea, the, the point is, um, Rand is is running games that it's asked to run by sponsors from the US government. So I want to get your perspective, and you're also an academic, so you've kind of seen it across the gamut. You now build your own games at CNAS, as, that some have sponsors and some do not. So can you discuss and explain what the role of the sponsor is in game design and analysis? And then how does not having a sponsor change the way you think about designing and analyzing games?
3: Thanks, Jackie. Um, Federally funded research and development center. And and we created the gaming center at RAND because of Bob's uh, memo back in the day. So all comes full circle here. Um, Sponsors are a very fraught topic and uh, one that can be very challenging as a game designer because you have to work intimately with your sponsor to understand what they're trying to learn or what their goals are with the game. And that needs to shape everything else that you do. And it sounds really trite, but it's actually true. And sponsors often can um shape the game in good and bad ways and they can just be challenging because they can change their minds across the course of when you are preparing for a game sometimes at the last minute i think because games are events in a real place and time they think that they can shift it later even though you've been designing and doing all this work and it's like well let's change the scenario about you know 24 hours before you're planning to execute the uh, game, which can throw you for a bit of a loop, but the most important thing is understanding what they want to learn and then trying to whittle that down to a few objectives that are not really in tension with each other, which in and of itself is a pretty monumental task because oftentimes. Uh, the services in different parts of the Department of Defense really like to have, you know, exhaustive lists of learning objectives that are multiple pages long. And it's like, no, 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 no. let's, let's take it up to the right level of what you can actually confidently say that you can um, learn from a game and what you can't. And Um, Some of my former colleagues at RAND used to always say, you know, you shouldn't be getting a precise number from a game. You might find that you need certain types, more of certain types of precision guided weapons, but a game's not going to tell you that, that you need 723 of those to win the war against China or Russia or whoever the adversary might be in that situation. So, Understanding what a sponsor wants should really drive how you design the game and uh, allow you to get at the learning objectives. But sponsors also um, can impose themselves and try to use games to further their own sort of Uh, bureaucratic interests, Um, and then there are practical considerations that get involved. You know, they want 200 people to come play in your game. Well, you never want to really have 200 people to game. Um, It's unwieldy, and it it, it assures that you're going to have some players that are not engaged and that are going to cause problems because they're bored. Um, So there are many sort of practical things, where you hold it, who's playing, um, who's involved, uh, the players are really important because selecting who's going to be there, um, your game is really, I, I say, and we might talk about this later, but your game is as good as the players that you have. If you have folks who don't know what they're doing um, and they're supposed to be developing military concepts of operations and you know responding in a dynamic way to a thinking adversary to win on the battlefield, and it is uh, someone who doesn't really know the difference between a stealthy fifth generation fighter and a um, fourth generation fighter that is less capable, you might not get the best result. So players, um, and then there's of course the results. Rand, like all of the FFRDCs, is independent, and so is CNAS as a think tank, um, and you know, we have always maintained our own right to um, independently determine what the results are. But that doesn't mean that the sponsor pays attention to them, and there's many ways to bury those results, which um, unfortunately can happen far too often if you report back things that they don't want to hear that go against their parochial interests, against their preferred sort of Acquisition programs or concept of operations, it's not always easy telling them, telling a sponsor that um, their ideas need more work, to put it nicely, or uh, (laughs) that they're not particularly good. Perhaps there are escalation risks associated with certain concepts that they're very fond of. Um, And so it from Start to finish, um, working with a sponsor can be very rewarding and you can learn a lot when you have very interested good ones that understand what games are good for and what they're not good for. Uh, but you can also have sponsors who um, don't understand the strengths and weaknesses of board gaming and get too involved and try to shape the outcomes because they're trying to move certain bureaucratic battles in one direction or another. Um, and not having a sponsor is a very liberating experience. (laughs) You, you get to decide what you want to learn from the game. So it becomes a little bit more like a pure uh, research project that you're undertaking, where you determine what the question is and what you want to understand. And then you can more, you're freed up of some of those, um, the interference that sponsors serves sometimes uh, throw your way and to design the game in a way that you think is most sound, most aligned with uh, good research design principles um, and uh, a, the way that you think will produce the best results that you have the most confidence in. Um, and that that's great. Um, I think that Oftentimes because games with sponsors, especially like the title X games, the services run are really big, elaborate affairs. The stakes are very high and I would prefer to run smaller games with a fewer people where uh, you are free to learn and see what actually emerges from the game instead of sort of having to orchestrate this big elaborate show.
2: Hey, Jackie, can I jump in real quick?
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Um, I thought uh, Stacy was very careful and very, uh, very, <laughs> very good in describing some of the issues. And uh, I don't think either she or I would want to say that the services uh, are you know, bad actors in this. This would be another place where academics could help, as. Um, Stacy said, the services run Title X war games. These are war games that are designed to show how the force they are building will operate in the future. So it is very much the, what the Title X games are designed to do is to uh, provide evidence that the way a service is headed is the right way. And that's good. You need that because the services have the Title X responsibility to organize, train, and equip. And we want to know if what they're doing is going to be effective or we would like to have an idea on what they're building is effective. But it's very, very easy for the sponsors then to look at non-Title X war games and look at results that don't necessarily line up with the Title X game to then try to intervene and say, hey, could you do it this way or could you, you know, do that way? And that's, again, where I think academics could help. You know, if they were kind of monitoring uh, the war gaming enterprise, uh, they would observe the Title X games. They'd be able to make determinations on whether the Title X games were realistic, well-run, whether the uh, Conclusions that came from them were uh, credible, and then compare them with what was happening to non-Title X games and identify to the senior leaders in the department, hey, we have a disconnect here. You know, there there are some games that are showing something that that deviates from the Title X game. And so, uh, like the Army in the 1990s ran a wargaming series called Army After Next it was ginormous i mean i agree 100 percent with stacy you don't want to have a lot of people but they would have like two or three or four hundred people at these games and they would have people playing the president the secretary of state and the secretary of commerce i mean it was unbelievable Um, but it was really really an interesting set of games in the first game the acting president did not want to fight a war against Russia because he uh, he was afraid of nuclear escalation. And the whole purpose of war game was to tell the army if their new operational concepts or future operational concepts had anything to do with it. So the war gamers, I mean the white cell had to go to the president and say, look, pull the trigger, push the button. We have to have a war. <laughs> and of course that wouldn't happen in real life.
1: Well, I think um, Eric and I have both um, run our own war games without sponsors. Um, And I think um, it gives you a lot of freedom, substantively, to ask questions that might be threatening to what kind of service interests are. But it also allows freedom methodologically. So Eric and I both employ things that look like experiments. I tried multiple times to get some of our sponsors at the Naval War College to buy into this experiment thing and they were not about it. <laughs> so I think there's also kind of room methodologically um, that not having a sponsor can provide, but it also means you have to generate your own funding, which can and um, you know, there are places like uh, the Army, Stratcom, all these places have a lot more resources than academics. And I want to I want to move to Micah because Micah We've spent a lot of time in this conversation and addressing what exactly a war game is. Um, And in both the first and the second sessions, um, Eric and Reed and our panelists um, spent a lot of time delving into like what a war game is and what a war game isn't and whether the definition is important. Um, Now you do work that we could call kind of more about red teaming. So can you explain a little bit about, you know, what is red teaming? And then, how is this related or not related to wargaming?
4: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'd be careful to call myself the person who can't speak for red teaming because red teamers, despite being open, divergent thinkers, tend to be very parochial and they actually have very closed minded ideas of what, what official red teaming is and isn't. So, this is one person's opinion. Um, for me, red teaming is really just an industry challenge agnostic way to change the frame by which groups and judgments make decisions. That's all it is. Basically, if you look at the process by which any group um, forms an opinion and makes a choice, there are a range of individual biases and organizational pathologies built into all those processes. Um, Red teaming is an attempt to change the frame to mitigate against those biases that are most probable to introduce suboptimal decision-making, especially when dealing with Um, strategic, complex, or multi-stakeholder choices, ones that have long-term impacts, affect a range of different people. Um, It's all based on the central premise that groups who are tasked to develop a plan, whether that's an operational plan to go to war, to put a new product out in the marketplace, to come up with a new process for everything you can imagine, they're the least likely to see it um, um, divergently or the least likely to identify shortcomings um, with the plan, because they identify with it, it is part of their obligation and their responsibility. And just as if you asked me to describe how great a dancer I am, how attractive I am, you shouldn't believe what I tell you because I have no reason to be honest with you. So similarly, the people who write the plan, you can't trust them um, to tell you the truth about what are its shortcomings. By design, blind spots are unforeseeable, and they exist in all of us. If we could see them. Uh, you would have sort of perfect omniscient uh, cognition. So for example, a lot of the frames that we try to change have to do with hierarchy, with um, group think, with presentism. So if you have people who are over obsessed with the near term, who have strong influence of senior leadership, who have low degrees of psychological safety, you have to change the frame through which they see the problem. You do that through things like awarding participants anonymity, um, through giving them very specific structure through which they work through a problem set, through engaging in visioning exercises to get them to think over the horizon, to force them to assume the roles or the identity of stakeholders who will be impacted by the decision. Um, and so this is a, this is a, a sort of a, a facilitated structural approach that we take to everything from the smallest uh, discrete problem set up to full scale. I mean, just this morning I was doing um, this for a, a large uh, amalgam of emergency management responders, thinking through some of the consequences of emergency management response, which is by design, novel, complex, and involve lots of stakeholders. So again, it's just a changing the frame through which groups and judgments, uh, groups makes uh, judgments and decisions.
1: Now, you mentioned a little bit about um, the type of people that usually are on red teams and the type of people that you're recruiting to run through these exercises. And this is something that actually comes up in wargaming quite a bit as well. And so I was interested from your perspective, like how important is it to generate the right people, the right individuals and to, for red teaming um, and then for kind of scenario development and wargaming? Can we just grab anybody or are there certain characteristics or knowledge that we need to look for?
4: Yeah, I I think it varies again by doing, you have to start with doing a needs assessment of what are the biases and the pathologies that are most prevalent within this organization. I actually think you can do red teaming with everybody. Um, It is often the case that we look for people who have special uh, subject matter expert knowledge or you want people with certain specific experiences and then you have them um, participate in some of these facilitated exercises. Actually, I like to empower people at the front edge Um, people who are young enough, they don't know any better, old enough, they don't care anymore. It's this sort of random composition of diversity that um, leads to higher, and I would say more um, unique insights. Most red team exercises take one cohort of leaders or one cohort of people at the next layer down. So like GS-14s, 15s, 06s, and they say like, okay, you're going to be the red team. Well, undoubtedly, these are peers who are already networked with each other They've gone through the same professional military education experiences. They've all read the same doctrine. They have the same received set of beliefs about what military conflict should look like. And they don't perceive problems differently, almost ever. So you have to get people who have different experiences and outcomes, who have seen failure, um, and who are willing to uh, be part of this process. There's also the larger sort of institutional issues of incentivizing it, rewarding it, buying off people's time, because this takes time. Um, But I think the diversity of composition is the most important um, aspect of it. And then some people can't do this. Um, They can't envision, for example, the United States failing. They literally can't imagine like US soldiers dying. And so they shouldn't participate in these sorts of situations. Um, uh, But in general, most people can do this if you have strong uh, facilitation and an inclusive environment.
1: Uh, Stacy, I want to pivot right back to you because this is another instance where your ears may have been burning the last few weeks because you um, are a co-author on a very influential discussion in science. Um, our previous panelist, Andrew Reddy, um, him and his team had written a, a really interesting article in science that was arguing actually for larger N war games and for iteration. Um, and and even the the use of computer-based samples in order to increase the overall um, N. To get back to what Mike was saying, in order to create like a randomization of characteristics. And this is something that, you know, we see in social science a lot is this idea that having um, a random but large sample um, increases the generalizability of your outcomes. Um, But you guys in the, you and your co-authors in the science article make a, a different argument about the importance of the right sample. Um, and so uh, can you talk through this debate about uh, between large end war games uh, and expert samples? And then if you don't mind, just take a really big chew on this. If you can come back to not just sample, but iteration um, and what role iteration plays in
3: war games. Sure. Um, I'll take a crack at it. Let's see. So I agree with Micah that I that you know, diversity is a good thing to have. And uh, when you're looking at different players and who's playing, who your sample is, who you're drawing from, um, sometimes there are specific characteristics you want for red team players in particular, those that are intended to challenge. You want them to understand whatever uh, actor they're representing to have a basic understanding of their strategy, their capabilities, Uh, But you also really want some people that just don't like to lose and are willing to go win at all costs because they're going to find the weaknesses in the other team's um, actions and in their strategy, and they're going to try to exploit them. And that helps you to identify those vulnerabilities and ultimately to come up with uh, stronger plans and um, courses of action within a fight. So the... Sampling issue is one where it is a bit of, I think, a debate between like so many things on more games, the practitioner side and, and who focus on policy analysis and the academics who are really interested in trying to conduct causal inference. And when you're doing that, you want random samples, um, you want large samples, you have increased confidence in the results, you can run statistical analysis on them. Um, when you're running games for policy analysis, you typically um, want players that have enough um, of an understanding of the topic that you're studying that they can make informed decisions. This is sort of the bar that I've, I've settled on. They don't necessarily have to be experts. They don't have to have sat on the National Security Council. That's a very small sample, right? People who have held the top jobs in uh, different governments, but you want them to be able to make informed decisions. If they're making stupid decisions, then your game results really aren't going to have much validity. Um, So you either have to build a game that helps non-expert people make informed decisions by providing them with information in a way that they can process and use in a reasonable amount of time, or um, they have to actually just really have that expertise uh, at their fingertips and be able to um, call on it. Um, but when I run games for, for policy uh, analysis, you know we often want players with different types of expertise. you know in the military, everybody has very narrow specialties that um, they're very deep in, but they don't necessarily understand um, a soldier wouldn't understand how an airman or is going to fight. Um, and uh, you need to bring in people with different types of requisite knowledge so that they can um, make all of the decisions in a reasonable manner, a reasonably informed manner. So um, I tend to think that there are only so many uh, people that are available for certain types of games that are focused on, Either wargaming, because uh, most people don't actually understand how um, militaries operate or plan to operate. Um, if you're making decisions that are supposed to represent senior decision makers, um, you know the threshold's probably different. Uh, and that uh, I find that it's really important that if you don't have people who are good who understand it and who make um, informed good choices in a game, um, that is really your critical variable to, to blur the two things. The people who play are the thing that makes uh, makes games different from any other method and the decisions that they make are the most important thing. So if they're not able to make good decisions, I don't know how the game has much validity. So, um, I tend to come down on the side of you need to, um, have informed players or build a game that can provide players with information they need, which is hard to do because you try to simplify things without dumbing them down um, where they're just abstract representations. is important for both, um, but for different reasons, um, slightly different reasons. I mean, in both cases, it increases your confidence in the findings, you can observe trends. And you can uh, see where uh, certain commonalities um, come out, but in for policy analysis, you just never run the games that many times. I think the most games I've ever run was with Rand um, in defending the Baltics, and that was probably like thirty. Um, and over the course of many years, because most of these the policy games end up taking up several days of people's time Uh, and that's really hard to get and that's something that's very precious and uh, that can be a real impediment to actually running the game many times. But ultimately you do wanna iterate um, so you uh, can better determine and assess whether a game's results are some weird anomaly because you had this crazy player one day or whether they actually um, are Uh, represent something that you expect to happen in the real world and that you think have uh, some more generalizability?
1: I will say the last um, three weeks to a month has emphasized to me that sometimes you also need the crazy player in the room. Um, Because if I've run a game 580 times and 570 times my players all choose kind of a standard basket of options but 10 times my players choose something outside the standard um I need to recognize that that 10 while unlikely is within the realm of possibilities and I think that's something that um actors like Putin actually emphasize about war games is that um having the right sample uh, can be um, can also include having the crazies in your <laughs> in your sample. Um, so I want to take one of the questions from the audience because I think it, it actually works really nicely um, and ask all of the panelists. Um, maybe starting um, with Micah, you know John Scott Logel, who was one of our previous panelists, is joining us today as uh, uh, watching the the webinar, and he asked um, about how you assess the effectiveness of war games or series of war games. And I think also this this is something that sticks with me a lot is how you think about the effectiveness of red teaming. Um, And how does a a, a wargaming center or someone who's running a red team analysis, how do they know how well they're doing? How do they measure their own effectiveness? So I want to go ahead and start with Micah and then uh, move to Bob.
4: Yeah, I think this is not just something that that deals with red teaming or wargaming is how do you demonstrate the utility of any preventative measure? Like that is always the inherent challenge, and it's the reason why preventative activities and preventative thinking gets pushed to the side. You know, Gresham's law, long-term strategic planning gets um, displaced by near-term priorities. So, if we're all obsessed with the tyranny of the inbox because it is something actionable, something that's tangible we can do something about and get credit for today, um, we overfocus on it, and nobody's ever um, judged on their future performance because it hasn't happened yet. So, how do you demonstrate to somebody that, this, that there is utility for any preventative thinking whatsoever. And I think you have to lay some very clear benchmarks with any sponsor or whoever the point of contact is who gets the process ongoing. Are you looking to um, identify specific vulnerabilities in any product, process, plan, idea, or game? Um, you can work with people in advance to get a sense of what those are, what is the pain threshold, and you can tailor any sort of exercise or war game to make sure that those are being touched. Um, You know, a lot of the war games or the red teams that I do are really as much designed to force inclusion and empowerment among a group of people. uh, And especially among emerging leaders who rarely get the opportunity to weigh in on strategic choices. And we measure pre and post event like net promoter score stuff, like. Did you feel like this was a good use of your time? It's always the case, they always wish it was longer. And they always say, we never have conversations like this. So it's really the opportunity for people to have white space strategic conversations that they otherwise never have, that has a longer term impact. People feel invested in, they feel included. Um, And organizations that tend to do these activities have higher levels of engagement and morale more broadly. So you're not just, you know. Um, testing an idea or pressure testing an idea or a process, you're also trying to change the participants who are part of it. And that was one of the things that Andrew Marshall was very famous for. He would identify cohorts and he basically wanted them to be a network. So he'd find a bunch of emerging Air Force O4s and he'd say, you're going to be on this special uh, group and you're going to do this war game. And at the end of it, they were best friends. Um, That was as important as the results of any report they published, right? So there are always other reasons for doing these. The key thing is to make sure they're positive and pro-social and not for malign intent. They're not to sort of um, uh, whitewash an effort to really something that really needs to be pressure tested to um, cover over mistakes and so forth. So um, the last thing I'll just say is that worse than not doing war games or red teaming at all, is doing it and then openly discarding the results. Because when you do that, you signal to all the participants and the wider organization that this is not a place where we welcome challenging, dissenting viewpoints, and we welcome preventative and creative thinking. Once you signal that, try to get their participation next time, right? Try to get them to think over the horizon next time. They won't do it.
1: Bob, your memo about wargaming really implied that there should be some way to assess effectiveness. Um, So I'm interested in your perspective here about how you you think about wargaming be effective and then um, how should organizations like John Scott is at the Naval War College, how do they think about evaluating themselves in terms of their ability to um, run and conduct effective wargames?
2: Well, I think you have to start with someone who is a seasoned pro at wargaming, and have them look at the war game and ask questions like, "What is this game? What was this game designed to illuminate? So, was it designed to uh, study different policy options? Was it designed to illuminate new concepts of operations? Was it designed to assess?" the capability or the effectiveness of, a, uh, of the current force structure. So you start there, then you have somebody say, okay, how did you design the game to get there? And you uh, have somebody say, yep, the design is consistent with what they're trying to do uh, and is relatively well done. Uh, and then what was the nature of the players? And I just want to pick up on what Stacy said in just a second. But again, this would be something that the academic community could do. Uh, Now, as the deputy secretary, I relied upon Cape, uh, who was the keeper of the repository, uh, to inform me on whether or not they believed the games were well-designed, well-executed, and could be used... Uh, to make some initial judgments uh, consistent with the problem that the war game was trying to uh, settle. Obviously, the senior leader in the department isn't going to be able to look at the thing and say, "Hmm, I wonder, just you know, is this a ninety percent uh, good war game or is it, you know, a, really a piece of trash?" You have to have someone who really knows what they're doing to take a look at the war game and say, yes, this thing has been designed well, executed well with good players, all of the things we've talked about. And the other one is if you have a series of war games, which I always think is the best way to go about it, are the series of war games relatively consistent or is there an outlier? And you don't want to get rid of the outlier. It's like the, uh, the famous move in the Lisa Dahl Go game where I think it was called the 10th move or something like that. It was a move that the AI uh, at AlphaGo did that no human would ever do. I mean, it was called a one in a million move. And uh, it so confused Lisa Dahl. He, he literally got up and walked out of the room and going, what the heck is going on? So you don't want to throw out war games that uh, have an outlier you want to make sure you understand uh, how did this occur. What uh, what is it telling us? Are we missing something? So, again, having a, you know, I think the Department of Defense would do well to establish an independent kind of war game assessor, uh, and that would be really good. It could be RAND. It could be something. Uh, it could be the group. I think it's called Connect. Is that the Is that the group, the Wargaming group that, uh, you know, is a bunch of Wargamers and academics? Uh, They meet constantly, they have little uh, conferences, Uh, you know, maybe they're the ones who could help the department say, look, you're on the wrong track here, or these games really you should pay attention to.
3: Jackie, could I jump in for a second? Yeah, definitely. I was going to
1: turn it right to you anyway, so perfect transition.
3: I'm always, you know, so polite and just interrupt when needed. Um, No, I think, uh, Bob, uh, uh, we've hit on a bunch of different things that are important, but you need to know what your game's goals are. And there's often a sliding scale um, uh, in terms of, softer goals of bringing different communities together and then people grade themselves and it it can always devolve to oh hey folks had a good time and um you know they made connections and that's uh, I don't think good enough, um, but I think your games need to be graded differently if they're intended to come up with new ideas. If they're supposed to innovate, you know, which is what Bob had really emphasized. You're looking for uh, new concepts that show some viability. You're not going to have really extremely stress tested them yet. It's just sort of initial ideas that you're going to want to take out and. Um, further explore, refine, and iterate over time. If you're gaming to, you know, break down connections between organizations, which people do all the time, they have time to think about uh, different things. That's a much softer, easier goal and player experience is important. I do think if you're trying to learn something or or test something rigorously, um, that games, uh, player experience is still important because if they're not engaged in, really grappling with the issues you present with them with and taking them seriously, that you're probably not getting the best results. Um, But it is a really hard thing to grade a game because the reports do a very poor job normally of capturing um, what went on. And I sometimes think that having full transcript, sorry Reed, I know this is uh, what you liked with your work, can be good, but can be very misleading too because there's a lot of noise in there. And um, what always happened in the game is sometimes less important than the reasons that people decided to take actions or didn't take actions. And sometimes the path's less not taken or uh, might be yield the insights that are most important. So reports tend to be poor. They're not shared very widely, so it makes it hard to uh, see what went on. And then you also sometimes need to be there to understand some of the interpersonal dynamics and um, how things went down. Though it's impossible, even if you're running a game, if you have uh, different teams in different rooms to have perfect visibility into everything that's happening all the time. So it's a really tough issue, and I think that um, the department as a whole and in general, different people need to take it more seriously and come up with some uh, standards for assessing different types of games to help improve the overall quality.
1: Perhaps a defense science board of people like Stacy and Ellie and members of our other, uh, our other panels who could maybe lead in... Um, I think that it would be helpful to have a, a transition point between what Eric and Reid and I go through, which is the kind of peer review process of academia, which is you know arcane in itself, um, and something that could translate into the national security and department of defense um, about kind of what are rubrics for what is um, good war games and not good war games and good standards of practice and not, it's a little bit more art than science right now. Um, so I wanna shift a little bit to um, the role that war games play in foreign policy decisions and how they are and can be used as an influential tool in defense decision-making. And I'm actually gonna start with my co-author, Reed polly because Rita has this um, really lovely article in foreign policy um, that's looking at the, that traces the impact of games to policy outcomes. So, Reed, if you don't mind, can you explain a little bit about um, what you were arguing and, and illustrating in the foreign policy article?
5: Sure, thanks very much. Um- uh, so I I wrote a uh, a piece that was motivated actually just to, at the beginning of uh, the pandemic uh, by this this sort of narrative or question that was emerging in the press at the time uh, about well how could we not be prepared for this right um, and and uh, you know doing very quick digging uh, I thought this was a useful hook for looking at the. The, the impact and policy, uh, of policy uh, of simulations right, on policymakers. And so uh, it's not so hard to find out that, that, you know, at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was as normal in the um, uh, transition period, a tabletop simulation done with uh, incoming members and outgoing members of administrations. Uh, and one of which was in fact, uh, a simulation of a global pandemic and kind of the preparedness measures, um, the emergency preparedness tabletop kind of exercise games that that we would be familiar with. Um, the issue, right, with learning from that and and using it as a, a jumping off point to be prepared for crisis is that um, the the senior leaders who participated in this game did not last long in the administration and were rapidly replaced by new senior leaders, right? And so, I think. I think there's a couple of lessons there. We, we have, you know, these jokes about um, uh, how administration officials in the Trump administration didn't seem to last long in their posts. Um, and and that is indeed a, a vulnerability. But we can also think about this as kind of a, a lesson about not doing this enough. Right. And not um, uh, having a more consistent uh, training and learning process from simulations. And, and I was just then bringing in data um, uh, the, what we know historically about um, cases of, of the unfortunate lack of learning from war games. We've heard a couple of examples already raised um, that were fascinating. The, the one that is, is most widely known is that during the Vietnam era, there was a series of games run called the Sigma series that were post hoc described as a dry run for the actual thing that were, while not actually predicting, because war games don't do a great job of prediction, what they were showing is that uh, the current strategy was failing and that um, uh, there needed to be a reevaluation. And those game results, now um, historians can go back in the archive and look, at how far they made it through their bureaucracy, but those game results did not make it to decision-makers uh, in the White House, right? So they were not um, uh, drawn up the train far enough, right? To, to challenge the the biases, the thinking of, of uh, uh, policymakers who were implementing current strategy. Um, but, you know, we should think about this as a real opportunity to do better, to inform um, uh uh sound foreign policy right because there we also have anecdata about how much players themselves learn uh and take to their jobs when they go from participating in war games to becoming practitioners uh we have anecdata about how much they have learned and how much they seem to appreciate having done these dry runs for the actual thing when a crisis does emerge so uh, just by way of including some of this anecdata we have war games that were conducted at MIT in the 50s and 60s, where players were surveyed later on in their careers and asked uh, uh, how much uh, they thought that participating in the MIT games had helped them to do their jobs. And a majority said that they think about them often. Um, uh, In in, uh, Condoleezza Rice's book with Amy Ziegart. there is a a more specific anecdote about how on 9-11, when um, Secretary Rice was the national security advisor, she thought uh, very quickly uh, during the crisis, uh, the morning of September 11th, um, back on the game she had participated in uh, during the Cold War about uh, crisis communications using the hotline between Moscow and Washington. And she realized that You know, the president is ordering uh, an airborne alert and the next thing we need to do is to call Moscow and tell them why we are ordering an airborne alert. Right. And and uh, communicate with our adversaries in a crisis, lest there be misperception. So so it's very clear. And I actually think this is the last thing I'll say is that we need better data than than these kind of uh, ad hoc um, recollections. Uh, But if there are any indication, they show that policymakers uh, who participate in simulations um, take the lessons they learn, uh, um, and and not just if the simulation is is a simulacrum of reality for a crisis, but really just to, uh, to learn lessons about strategic choices in general, right? Uh, And so I think this is an exciting opportunity, and this is a great conversation to be had between the folks outside who can run some of these simulations and hopefully get policymakers to participate.
2: One of the things that is really good for senior policymakers in the government is to put them in a uh, scenario which illuminates the decisions they would have to make under the time constraints they are likely to face. And so, I don't know uh, if Stacy saw the same thing, but anytime there was a war game like the invasion of the Baltics, the senior decision makers who came in from the NSC had no clue on how fast they would have to make decisions uh, for us to be able to react. Um, We did a series of war games for space, for example, with the National Security Council in the uh, Trump administration, up to and including President, I mean, Vice President Pence. And, you know, there's not, in some cases, they would say, well, you got to give me more information. And we'd say, look, things that are going on in space are inherently ambiguous. Uh, This is what we see. This is what we think is happening. We need you to make a decision. And, of course, any senior leader isn't going to like that. They're gonna say, well, I gotta have more information before I can make a decision. And uh, I'm sorry, you're not gonna get any more time. You have to make a decision for gameplay, And then we get to show, you know, did they make the right decision? That really, really helps senior decision makers. We don't do nearly enough of it in the government.
1: I wanna pick up on this because um, I think both th- these comments and Reed's comments highlight the extraordinary experiential quality and the teaching quality of participating in games and how strong that experience can be and how decision makers take it with them um, into decisions that they make for the next you know 20 years but one thing Micah brought up was um and, and you as well Bob was about the how Andy Marshall and um, use the power of experience in war games um, to help build networks of influence. And this is something that I've kind of been very interested in. So I'd like to hear from your perspective, Bob. I talked to you a little about this when I, um, we had a conversation uh, a while ago for um, the book that Julia McDonald and I are writing. And I I had one a little bit later with Michael Vickers about the 20 um, XX games. Um, And I'm interested, from your perspective, how the design of games and the choosing and the selection of players, how that also becomes a way to influence policy.
2: And this gets to, I was actually going to make the point, but uh, I forgot to do it. The first 20XX games were failures what happened is we brought in what we consider to be the best operators from the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Army. And we said, okay, we want you to envision this world with uh, where precision strike capabilities had widely proliferated. How will this change the way that you operate? And it was just too hard for them. They had, you know. They were generally 0-4, They had uh, 10 to 20 years of experience. And generally what they did is they just replicated the experience that they were familiar with, but with some new cool things. And what we finally had to do uh, is we said, look, we are going to build a game book. Now, there are some connoisseurs of war games that would probably say, hey, this isn't the, uh, the best thing. But we actually made game books which described in some level of detail the systems that would be consistent with a world uh, where precision strike, battle networks, and guided munitions were widely proliferated. We would give them to the players ahead of the game and require them to read them. And then when they came in, they were much more able to immerse themselves in that world and come up with new operational concepts. So sometimes, especially when you're trying to say, we need to think anew, there are things changing. You've got to think creatively on how you can get the players uh, uh, to get there. And your point on uh, Andrew Marshall really wanted to have 04s and 05s play because his thinking was, If we can inculcate these players with the type of thinking that you would need to have to fight and survive and win in this world, when they became general officers, uh, they would be prepared and much better to be able to lead the forces. So it was all about building, like you said, the cadre of people who were like-minded and inculcated in ideas that were likely uh, were likely to come about. So building that cadre of uh, people in the world that you're trying to explore uh, is really, really important.
1: Well, Micah, do you think red teaming has the same experiential qualities as wargaming? And then... Um... I've seen recently a lot of um, use of war games as some sort of kind of valid data point for DOD policies, right? So like the Air Force says, oh, we need more you know, F-35s, look at this war game that we ran, right? And people seem to take a lot of credibility um, on wargaming data. Um, do you think that the same kind of credibility comes out of red teaming outputs? Um, so I'd love to hear kind of the differences and similarities between the two.
4: Yeah, the, the only time like a red team result gets leaked to the press is for intent. And it's rarely for the goal of sort of telling what actually happened. And unless you know the design, unless you know what they were intended to review, what was supposed to be pressure tested, um, you should be very skeptical. And this is true even of you know uh, physical or uh, cyber pen testing, which is you know people trying to break into allegedly defended network systems you know, they never they never fail, um, and they'll say like, "Well, there was this vulnerability at this location or this computer network." It's like, no kidding. They're, the vulnerability probably starts with the people who were at the guard or the people who wrote the software code, right? I mean, most most vulnerabilities are internal to an organization, not not external. So, I, I'm always very skeptical when I when I see red team results and people, you know, I send them my way. Um, um, so, you, again, unless you know what the intent was. Be, be very skeptical of the results, but people do weaponize the results, undoubtedly to drive home a point. You know, the, I, always, I always say the way you get people to care about you know your emergency management plan is to burn down the building across the street. And when you don't have a spare building to burn down, a simulation that gave the appearance of something that catastrophic, that consequential, that vivid, um, can make senior leaders um, change the way they think about a problem and be more susceptible to certain policy outcomes than they would have been otherwise.
1: Yeah, Eric and I are both um Air Force reservists. And the um the I think it's been probably etched in both of our brains that the famous um Air Force demonstration of the power of strategic bombing by taking out an aircraft carrier. <laughs> but I think Eric also could attest that um. The Air Force has been remarkable at um, remarkably strategic about the way they um, declassify and publicize uh, war game uh, that support whatever kind of the, the the services core objectives might be. Now. Stacey, you worked for the Air Force um, in a lot of these RAND games. And so you saw directly um, the way the work that you were doing was influencing the Air Force decision-making. And so I was interested kind of your perspective as well on how these games um, influenced or didn't influence different um, Air Force Um,
3: decision-making. I mean, they definitely do. And they influence different people People can play in the exact same game and take away different lessons from it, right? And that's one of the challenges with gaming sometimes is folks will walk away with uh, different perspectives on what happened. The power of the games helps to sometimes convince skeptical audiences that there's a problem or that they're going to face a challenge in a particular situation. And I always think back to um, games that Bob may have actually run. I don't know who ran these. It was a CSBA-ran... Uh, collaboration for Pacific Vision 08 where they convinced then I think General Chandler that uh, aircraft parked at Okinawa Air Base were vulnerable to uh, ballistic missile attack and that it was the fact that he participated and was there and saw that what could happen that it influenced and changed his mind and should have um, driven more outcomes but it didn't actually always so um I think that games uh, can influence, but there's so much analysis that goes on and so many different types of games, and some of them are intended to influence the budget and the program and others are not. Some are supposed to be you know, innovative, thinking about the next generation of systems you want to be developing and the new type of concepts, uh, futures games, um, instead of uh, current ones. So um, the Air Force has certainly tried to use games because they've run into resistance on the hill. And I think games can be a very useful sort of um, communications tool or socialization, way of socializing ideas, because when you play in it, you have that story living experience as my colleague Ed McGrady likes to say, and it's very powerful. Um, but it's hard to get people to play, uh, to actually have the time to play in games. So the selective invoking of war games is just, you know, trying to help them to put forward the programs that they think that that are needed Um, and to, in some ways, um, impress upon key audiences and stakeholders who control the purse, especially on the Hill, um, that change is needed and that like, we can't just keep doing what we are right now in terms of the Air Force. So um, the Air Force has used games to um, come up with new ways of operating and to think about doing things very differently. Like Bob was talking about earlier, more unmanned systems, um, perhaps fewer fighter, manned fighter aircraft that are in and how they can figure out how to effectively Um, project combat power in a very um, heavily contested environment but I I feel like it's done in a very haphazard way and all the services you know they might invoke the joint warfighting concept or game and different things and because there's a lack of transparency and we don't have all of the information that uh, audiences are still sometimes skeptical you can get sort of the dramatic aspect of the games you know you have my former colleague, Dave Ekmanek saying, we get our asses handed to us. And I think this is a reference to the Air Force's games. Um, and that helps to impress upon the need to do something, but um, it's it's pretty, you know, ad hoc at this point.
1: I wanna highlight something that, uh, which is different than uh, in defense than the academic side. And for this, I wanna to turn to my um, colleague, Eric Greenberg. In the academic sphere, we have to run or, or go through what's called an institutional review board when we run war games, because war games are inherently behavioral phenomenon in which people are interacting and we are collecting on their actions. Now, we, as you know, scholars and researchers have an ethical obligation to um, let players know if we're using the war games to influence or if the treatment is going to have uh, potentially a negative effect on them. But Department of Defense war games don't go through an IRB. Um, So I was interested from your perspective, Eric, because you've worked with DOD war games and you've also kind of gone through this ethical process in the academic side. Is there an ethical obligation if people are designing war games to influence? And should the DOD have a responsibility to think through the ethics of war gaming?
0: That's a great question. I think there's actually two elements uh, to ethics, right? When I think about the IRB traditionally, I think about ethics of human subjects research. So making sure I'm not causing any kind of undue harm to participants that are participating in research. Uh, and so that I think is really the goal of the IRB um, on that perspective. But there's a second element of ethics and that is, you know, what are we doing with the data that comes out of those games? Um, and in some cases, the IRB isn't necessarily regulating how a, a researcher is going to analyze or interpret their findings. And I think we, we see in some cases a closer parallel there to what's happening uh, in, in policy games, right? As many of the speakers have said, um, end customers might selectively interpret game findings. They they might design games in certain ways to, to push forward uh, certain agendas. Um, and so to the degree that an IRB might be able to help that, I'm not really sure it would. I think what would actually help this is something that gets back to to Deputy Secretary Work's comments from earlier about additional degrees of oversight. Uh, So allowing external actors to come in and and to evaluate the findings of the game to say, okay, does the raw data actually support the conclusions uh, that the, the sponsor or the report is actually putting out? Or are they essentially uh, selecting on certain variables or are they biasing certain types of things? I think back to kind of earlier points though, uh, there, there's challenges in doing this, right? Many academics don't have the security clearances needed to, to look at this game data. Um, and, and perhaps those that do have an institutional background, right? Uh, they serve in the military previously, they work in an FRDC or something of that nature. Uh, so I think it's, a, it's an important question. I'm not sure there's a, a great solution in my mind.
1: Yeah, I think that um... This is a really good example of where um, the ethical obligations are very different. um, And yet this core idea about about being responsible with data and understanding the inherent biases of data is really important. And I also think we're coalescing around some sort of, you know, defense science board kind of outside organization that maybe some of the people um, on this panel could serve on. so um, I wanna go to one of the questions from the audience and I'm gonna kind of manipulate it a little bit. There was a question in the audience about the metaverse and this actually comes up a lot in gaming, not just about the metaverse, but like what what is the medium through which gaming occurs? Uh, is tabletop gaming, is that really, is that gaming? Is uh, if we're playing a computer game or we're using a computer interface, is that gaming? So I'm interested from you guys' perspective, what role does the um, the interface through which people are engaging um, affect war games or red teaming? And I'll start with Micah.
4: Yeah, that, I mean, we everyone learned this about two, years and two months ago, when all the work we were doing in person primarily became virtual. And it was fascinating, like, experiment to learn what is the different um, way that you change conversations in forced remote environments. Like, we learned, for example, that because there's a clock in the lower right-hand corner of everyone's screen, you actually, conversations end on time. People actually are obsessed with the clock that you don't see normally when you're in a room with each other. Um, there's also a lot more social loafing um, among participants in virtual settings because they can have their camera on or off. They can choose to engage or not engage. You have to like literally force and compel people to be participants through lots of different uh, mechanisms. So there's, there's lots of, there were lots of changes to it but the more interesting thing was that we got the information, the data faster. Normally we would do these uh, sorts of activities, these exercises, like in in large group in-person settings, use whiteboards, use a lot of uh, collect papers, three by five stickies, everything you would envision. But when you do it virtually, you actually get the raw data, um, the quantifiable data back from participants faster. And we could build uh, findings and recommendation reports faster. We could create uh, matrices. We create a lot of risk matrices based upon um, the information people provide on um, identifiable, uh, probable and severe risks. So we were able to do things faster, but you lost some of the connectivity, the body language reading that we're all deeply aware of the, um, uh, uh, what they call persistent eye gaze fatigue that we're all experiencing probably right at this moment. So that was a different aspect of it, uh, virtually, and nobody would have known this right in, in case we had been forced to do it. So, you know, never let a crisis go to waste.
1: And Bob, you've probably experienced a lot of different types of mediums when you've been through wargaming. Do you think that it matters what the, the medium or the interface is?
2: I much prefer in-person games because, as uh, Stacy said, the dynamic among the players is very, very important to observe and to say. For example, in many wargames where there's a general officer on a team, everybody starts to defer to the general officer and what the team essentially provides is what the general officer or flag officer thinks. And so being able to understand that, see the dynamics, why are, how are they coming to a decision? Uh, is it a true consensus decision? Um, to me, that is always ideal. Uh, I personally have never participated in a war game that was primarily virtual. I just haven't, haven't done. It. So I don't have a lot of experience in that regard, <laughs> excuse me, regard.
1: Stacy, you've actually run, you've run virtual games. I know you've done tabletop games. I know you've read all of the back and forth about hexes and all the, the icons and, So I'm I'm sure you have some ideas about what works, what doesn't, what matters, what doesn't.
3: I mean, it depends what you're trying to do. So at different points in time, you know, virtual has the advantage of bringing people together and that are maybe in different locations that they otherwise wouldn't be able to make it. The the commander of Indo-Pacific Command can be talking to people in D.C. if they get up early. Um, but uh, I do tend to fall along Bob's views of liking impersonal games, in part because I personally just have trouble paying attention anymore when I'm in a virtual environment too long, and I think a lot of people are facing challenges like that. Um, there are there are other benefits too. You know, you get the transcript of chat. You can have information in terms of um, uh, what all of the interactions are. It's already recorded. You can just take it right there. Um, you can record the games more easily. Um, so there there are benefits, but um I haven't run any actually well other than in my classes I haven't run any computer games where it's really just what you imagine with uh uh like people do for entertainment and I've You know, that's in part because we're normally doing things on timelines where we need to produce a game and execute it more quickly than you can actually build a a good interface and computer platform to run it. And there are technical challenges, as I know um, Andrew and his crew experienced, you know, it's just glitchy and that that can be uh, annoying. So um, the nice thing about tabletop games or just seminar games or people in a room talking is that you don't have if the technology doesn't cooperate with you, you have a fail safe, you can move forward. Um, but you do have to know the rules. And computer games you know, can adjudicate it for you, though it's a black box. I tend to like, because it's about the, the players interacting with each other um, oftentimes, and having that discussion and debate, ultimately whatever they choose to do is what I'm often uh, most interested in. Um, I like them to be in the room. I like there to be pieces. It might even for non-combat games where they just have different things that represent and help to hold them accountable because they don't have infinite amounts of different resources, but it helps them to plan, to be engaged, um, to participate in it. Um, but uh, the, um, I don't like like PowerPoint games, which a lot of people do where you spend all of your time filling in forms. Um, that it could make sense uh, in certain circumstances, terminals, I think they do this at the Naval War College for command and control exercises. So the the platform, you know, it it varies which one is the best suited for a situation, but I guess in contrast to what most people assume where everybody only plays or mostly plays video games today, I think that the manual um, tabletop games are um, actually better in most of these circumstances for serious games.
1: So I think what's interesting there is that sometimes the use of terminals or the PowerPoint is as much a data collection device as it is like um, a mechanism for the game. And so, but it creates, there are kind of externalities. So at the Naval War College, we do have terminals and we actually have a pretty, or I'm not there anymore, but we had a very um, extensive kind of game net setup, um, which helped with realism. Um, but sometimes it meant people were like heads down typing, um, so you didn't have a lot of engagement kind of in the room. But Post talk, it's great because I'm grabbing all the data, all the texting that's happening between players. I can grab all that. Whereas, and Eric knows this because Eric and I have both served as ethnographers in these games, that when you're trying to write down what everyone's saying, it's almost impossible. Um, and in a classified environment, it's very, very hard to record. So so the, the mechanism also is driven by data collection. Now I wanna do one final question and this is from one of our, um, our viewers um, and it brings up something that Eric alluded to. And he asks, given that, you know, programs and capabilities are often classified and these games are often classified, uh, how can DOD um, bridge or use academia um, to try and help uh, innovate in war games? if anybody has uh, any uh, ideas about how we can overcome the classification burden. And I will say also, um, kind of because Reed works on archival data, there is a deficit of this wargaming data um, because the process of declassification, um, especially right now is so burdensome and so behind that a lot of this data is not actually ending up in um, unclassified archives. Um, And it's unclear also whether um, organizations are archiving appropriately um, before declassification. So now that we've moved to the digital world, there's a really good chance that a lot of this game data just disappears, um, especially off networks that are not, um, that are kind of standalone networks. So anyway, uh, that's a long preamble for, um, do you see any like way that we can overcome this barrier?
3: I think that's really hard. I mean, there's sort of, uh, I would say a broader issue of overclassification that often occurs and, makes it difficult. If the department actually makes strides on improving its IT infrastructure and with data sharing, then maybe it might be easier to do this. But even you know the CAPE repository, getting access to it requires extra permissions and um, everyone's supposed to turn in their reports. I don't think everyone does. Um, and they're of varying quality. So um, relying on the um, Professional military education schools like the naval, you know, naval postgraduate school, the naval war college, Maxwell, different places like that could be one way to bring in academics who also um, will have clearances. And but more broadly, I don't know what what the department should do. I do think there should be more unclassified games, and that's one of the things that we do at CNAS. And um, one of our, I think, uh, value adds is that. Um, we, we can take the best of our knowledge and do things unclassified, which has limitations, but being on the outside, it allows us to talk about things differently and to um, examine questions uh, and, and feed into the public discussion. Um, but I, I don't have a solution to the over-classification problem. Maybe somebody smarter than I does.
2: I don't have a solution for overclassification, but in this case, if the department said, say, for example, the DSB was designated by the deputy secretary as, hey, you're going to be responsible for kind of adjudicating or analyzing or assessing the quality of games. And the DSB could then set up a special committee and... People could be brought on as SGE, special government employees. They could be given a collateral clearance, and it would be clunky, and uh, it wouldn't be as fast as everybody would want, but it's doable. Uh, And you would probably want to uh, get a committee of, say, 100 uh, academics or wargaming experts And for any given game, you might only need three to conduct an assessment. So you'd always have a pool available from which to draw from. Uh, Now you'd have to judge the size of the pool against the demand of all the different war games. Uh, But this is something certainly that would be doable.
3: Um, what about when they invoke the SAP, uh, you know, capability oh, that is actually going to win the war that we just don't know about? Because like, that's, that's always the people go up a level. No, I think it's a good idea, Bob. Yeah.
2: i was uh, kidding. Uh, your, your point is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, solving the SAP problem would be almost impossible. Yeah, we'll also
1: have to pay the academics very well because as Reed and Eric know full well, especially in the assistant professor kind of like tenure tenure years, um, tenure track years, uh, there are not a lot of incentives for academics to do this kind of work um, because it takes away from the ability to so especially since none of this can be published, it takes away from the things that you do on your CV that actually get you tenure. Um, and I think sometimes the Department of Defense maybe doesn't appreciate how difficult it can be for academics to do this kind of work that they get no credit for. So um, I'm gonna do really, really quickly a lightning round just for a few minutes. And these are really tough questions that are very short answers. Eric and Reed, I'd like to bring you in. Uh, okay. Who does Wargaming best in the DoD? Stacy, we'll start with you.
3: I don't know. I, I don't feel qualified to answer that because I've only seen a biased sample. Yeah, I would is- say Brand, my, my former organization for DoD was uh, one of the best.
1: Micah?
4: It, you know, I was actually gonna address the earlier question which relates to this one and breaking the barrier between classified and unclassified. As someone who is in the unclassified world completely, and is no longer on any academic track, is I am brought in for the last three administrations to talk to White House, State Department, DOD, various command people who want to leverage any insights I can provide them. I give them all of my facilitation guides. I ask for nothing, like other than a sandwich and a Diet Coke, um, and, and willing to work with them to design any sort of game or any sort of experience they want. And it is amazing freely given advice for which on the private sector side of things, we get ridiculous amount of money. Like people are resistant because of classification, even not even the classified issues, even just bestowing the tools for how people could apply them. Um, It's almost impossible. So I wouldn't even know who does wargaming best because I don't see any of the wargaming entities who really leverage social science or practitioners in any honest way.
2: I
3: agree.
2: Bob? No, I'm with Stacy. I don't think I would be able to pick. I mean, there are, you know, the FFRDCs like RAND, CNA uh, are quite good. Uh, All of the uh, service war colleges uh, are quite good, depending on uh, if they have the the time and the curriculum to actually conduct war games. but I wouldn't be able to tell you who I think is the best.
1: Eric,
0: I'm gonna give you another unsatisfying answer, and it's gonna be it depends on the scope of the war game.
1: I should have asked who does it worst. Reid?
5: <laughs> yeah, as another non DODer, I'm gonna give a pitch for who is doing the most exciting uh, designing of their own war games right now that I know. And that's Jackie and Eric, who are Ooh. my co authors on this exciting paper. Go read the EJIR paper for all the really creative ideas they have about how to design games uh, for for maximal learning.
1: Okay, I'm going to give one last question. All right, you all get one line in the NDAA to invest in DOD war games. What do you invest in? I'll start with Bob.
2: Um, if they still have it, we had a war gaming incentive fund. It, oh, was yeah. a fund uh, it was a fund that would, uh, you know, if the services came up, and said, "Look, we'd like to do this game. It's consistent with the national defense strategy in this way, but we just don't have the funds." Uh, and say they say, "If we could have two hundred thousand dollars, we'd be able to really design and execute a well, well-run game." And uh, we established that. I don't know if it's still in existence. I think it is. Uh, but it was designed to incentivize the services to do war games that would illuminate aspects of the national defense strategy. So I would ask the Congress to fund uh, a war gaming incentive fund for the Department of Defense.
1: I like it. And let's add a part of the incentive fund that's for academics to do research. (laughs) Stacy.
3: I would uh, fund a sort of curriculum and invest in people to train them to design and run good war games. It ends up being one of the biggest limiting factors is because folks who don't know what they're doing uh, sometimes end up running games. So as a part of that, uh, training people in how to conduct war games that uh, you know follow good research design principles and uh, game design principles, and then also um, establish some criteria for helping to evaluate them afterwards. Micah. I mean, related to that, um, after
4: 18 years of being open last year, the Pentagon closed Red Team University at Fort Leavenworth, um, largely because I thought the army had done enough critical thinking and they could put an end to it. Um, unfortunately there is no part of the PME system that, um, teaches divergent and critical thinking at all, even though. Everyone recognizes we need to instill those capabilities within our officer corps. So on the current like path, you're going to see hundreds of thousands of new Mandarin speakers who can't think for themselves. And I think if you could invest just in literally divergent, critical, creative thinking for officers, that would be the single biggest impact.
1: All right. So I'm going to go ahead and um, just hand it over to Reed to close. So I you know we're at time.
4: Great. Thank
5: you for this. This has been a fantastic discussion um, and has complemented our other series, uh, other uh, webinars very well. Um, I just want to close this by thanking uh, Hoover for being our hosts, thanking MIT SSP and the Brown Watson Institute for uh, co sponsoring these events. Um, this is the end of the, the series of, war, of webinars, but this is not the end of the effort. So we invite you to continue to engage with us on Twitter, at seminars, at various events in the future, um, send us emails and, and read the EJIR paper that is in the chat. Um, just a quick note on that, it's, it's uh, gonna be behind a paywall next week. So downloaded today. Um, so in this series, we've talked about uh, historical games, archival research, we've talked about experimental games and how to design war games. And today we talked about the critical importance of war games for policymaking. And on each of those scores, there is more research to be done. So please join us in that effort as we continue this research. Thank you everyone for being here.